0: You to make a few decisions.
1: Tell me about it. We've pretty much decided on Miranda Bliss. If it's a girl.
0: Well, I'm, I'm t- talking about labor.
1: Oh, well, I got bags of time. Uh, the first one's always late, right?
0: No, 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 not at all. You, you really, you
2: should be thinking what kind of labor do you want?
1: There's more than one kind.
2: Well, yeah. Remember, we went over this in class. Do you want to be medicated or do you want an epidural?
0: Epidural is effective. It's safe for the baby. Basically, what's happening is it's numbing the area where the contractions occur, but it leaves you enough feeling so that you can push.
1: Well, tell you
0: what, let's just wing it, see what happens.
2: That's Dr. Joel Fleischman and patient Shelly Marie Tambo. Shelly's pregnancy is moving along, and it's going to happen soon. The baby's going to get delivered possibly quite soon, so she's got to start making some decisions. I like how she says... Uh, Let's just wing it. You know, I mean, the the conversation continues, but I like how uh, it's a nice little, this is a nice little setup for what we're going to be experiencing in this episode. Yeah, I thought she was going to give birth
3: this episode. Uh, Yeah. It certainly set itself up to that, where I thought the third act was going to have her giving birth right there. But overall, no. And I don't know if you had this feeling on this episode, but I felt very, like, I don't want to say it's bad. But, like, I felt very confused. I felt like there was, like, a lot of things happening. And also, like, a lot of things I like, I wasn't even, like, comfortable with touching. Like, I'm surprised they touched it. But then I, I don't know they realized what they were getting themselves into.
2: Hmm. I'd be curious to see uh, what you mean. Yeah, I remember liking this episode. Um, well, I will agree. Yeah, it's this is kind of like a, a long pregnancy for Shelley. I thought this might be this might be the one where she um, you know, delivers the baby. It's, it's called baby blues this episode. And, um, yeah, she's been pregnant for a while, but, uh, but hold on, Charles, what, what are we even talking about here?
3: Okay, so what we're talking about here is the Northern Overexposure podcast, where we talk about the 1990s CBS television sitcom, Northern Exposure. We like to overanalyze it, we like to look for any hidden meanings within it, and all of that stuff. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee.
2: My name is Lee, and I've seen Northern Exposure a few times. I'm a huge fan of it since high school. And Charles, every episode that we talk about, it's your first time watching each episode. So you're new to the show. Well, I mean, not really new because we're in season five now. So you've got a pretty good grasp for the characters. But that's also sort of like sort of the shtick of this podcast is to introduce Northern Exposure to new audiences because this is a show that um, for the longest time was you know well still today has never been available for streaming. For the longest time, you could only really watch it on DVD, and today that's pretty much still the case. I mean. There was some VHS releases for like maybe five or six episodes back in the day. I think there's also LaserDisc at this during that same time. Um, but the whole series finally came out. I want to say like in the late '90s or early 2000s on DVD. Now we've got Blu-ray as well, so we're watching in 1080. But uh, but yeah, so part of that mission of expanding the reach of the show, the show that is uh, you know not maybe not been seen by a lot of people today. Um, is we like to bring on a guest at the end of each episode and ask their opinion. So it's usually someone who has never seen Northern Exposure and kind of drop them fish out of water into an episode and see what they think. All right.
3: Well, who are the writers of this episode? Who was the episode director?
2: All right. So this episode, as we said, it's called Baby Blues. It's season five, episode 11 in the series. And it's directed by Jim Charleston. He was the director of the past episodes, Mud and Blood, which is season four, and Jaws of Life earlier in this season. And the writer was Barbara Hall, who I believe joined this season as like a consulting producer or producer of some type. Uh, she may have been on the show before, but I know for sure she's in this season, obviously, and she's a writer here on uh, this episode. And the air date, January 3rd, 1994. So this is like the first episode of the new year for, for Northern Exposure in 94.
3: Oh, wow. Well, I got to say, it's certainly, it's got like elements of Northern Exposure in it. Okay. But it, I felt like
2: there's just like a lot of things okay, going within yeah. it. I can't but, wait to dive in here. Yeah. Well, keep going.
3: Yeah. Like, well, I mean, since we're on that topic, <laughs> uh, which one should we talk about first with so many mechanisms within? Well, like there really isn't that many plot lines, okay. like an overarching plot line. There's, um, there's Ed with his script. And then there's Shelly with a pregnancy. And I guess you could make a case and say there's one for Joel and Maggie as well.
2: Yeah, that I guess uh, Joel and Maggie's kind of ties into the idea of Shelly's pregnancy. Though we could kind of separate them, but uh, they're they're pretty close in line with that plot. Let's let's maybe do Ed's plot line since we haven't started there yet. It's the first scene in the episode before the uh, opening title. We have the opening gambit. And I believe it's at Ruth Ann's store and Ed has received a fax. There's a fax for Ed from LA. It's from Jud Bromel. I actually, crap, I can't remember, but they pronounce it. I, someone else in the episode is like, Bromel, Bromel, um, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. It's definitely like, they they had multiple scenes where they were like, <laughs> how do you pronounce this man's name? But yeah, like you're saying, he sent the fax to Ed. He's very interested in looking at the script that he's got cooked up that he was working on on this season right. I believe he started working on it fairly, fairly recently it's called The Shaman presumably it's gonna be like a little bit of like influence from Ed's own life so we know that it's not it's, it's like an introspective character piece that yeah. Ed describes it as and Ed is excited. He's like, "Oh, whoa! Like they, they're gonna have we're gonna have breakfast over this." And you know how those Hollywood types do it. You know they don't actually eat the food. It's just like a business meeting. This is gonna be suits and tie. It's gonna be great. Immediately off the bat, you can kind of tell where this plot direction is going with just that one line mm-hmm. when he says, "Like breakfast isn't for family. It's for making big deals." The alarm bells kind of sound in your head, and you're thinking like. Okay, they're probably going to be talking about some sort of like moral degeneration of like, uh, you know, uh, family values or something like that. Or like just saying like how things are going to be corrupted, going to be a loss of something is what I gathered from this line. And I was right.
2: Right. Yeah. I like how they include that line about the, you know, they're too busy for having breakfast with their family. You got to do meetings and stuff. So you can, like you said, you can already kind of see that there's going to be some sort of, uh, you know, just like. Uh, well, I don't want to steal it from later, but like dog eat dog, just like very business first and, you know, humanity second in a way um, that we mm-hmm. see from, from, that we get from this agent, this Judd Bromel character. I should also mention that the agency that he works for is Pierce Blaustein and Jenkowitz, which uh, is shortened as PBJ. I thought that was pretty funny.
3: <laughs> yeah. He also talks about wanting uh, certain actors to be in it. Like he's yeah. already thinking about the cast. He thinks it'd be a perfect vehicle for one of the Baldwin brothers, which I guess back then in 1994, we all thought like, <laughs> oh, maybe like each one had like equal talent. But, like obviously <laughs> it's, it's, just, yeah. it's just Alec. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's just Alec there. Uh, so the shaman, he, I'm trying to remember now, did he start writing that? He, I remember like at the end of an episode, we see like him writing the beginning of that script. It's either the... F- season premiere here or it was like the one with uh Peter it's Bogdanovich? What, it's the one with Peter, isn't it? Uh, yeah, maybe so. Because it
3: ends with that shot of him like in his room and he's like typing on his typewriter.
2: Cool. Yeah, that yeah. one, what is that one called? Uh Rosebud. I'm pretty yeah. sure. I'm pretty sure that's the one where, yes, it is Rosebud because in the script it's like uh, a shaman walks down a street and he's carrying a uh, sled or something. Yeah, so it's referenced yeah, yeah, to, yeah. So, yeah, it's like filmmaker meets shaman meets... Ed, you know? Uh, Anyway, just continuing down Ed's plot line, we meet Judd. Judd, I think, comes in later. He comes into Ruth Ann's store trying to get to a phone because he's got to get in touch with Ed. And it's like, oh, wait, Ed's here. This is Ed. Ed meet Judd. Judd meet Ed. And um, real fast, the actor that plays Judd, Donald Logue, or Donal, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but he's a pretty big actor. I've always liked the things that I've seen him in. And every time I see him, I'm like, oh, it's that guy. Like, I know him from so much, but I'm kind of drawing a blank. The last thing I saw him in was uh, Blade, the vampire movie. (laughs) He's really ridiculous in that movie, but a lot of fun, I guess. Um, But I think he's a pretty great actor. And uh, I was glad to see him here in this episode.
3: Oh, I kind of know him from some stuff. (laughs) I've seen him on Gotham Mm. because he's like, he has a very distinct look to him. And he's also in Zodiac, but I can't quite place him
2: hmm. in Zodiac. It, I mean, it must in be an
3: important role because he's like seventh on the list.
2: Yeah, lots of lots of credits to this guy's name. Uh, and we get to add Northern Exposure as well. So in this scene, Judd reveals that he has some some notes potentially for Ed, like on the script. Like, our, you know, it seemed like Ed was just ready to sell the script because this is an agent who's going to sell his script to whatever. And um, well, it turns out Judd, you know, in order to represent Ed, he wants to maybe implement some script notes. So they're going to have a meeting eventually and go over these notes. But um, that's kind of like the first sort of red flag that we get here with this this plot line, this character of uh, Judd. Um, the only other thing I have written down for this scene is Liam Neeson. I can't remember if it's Judd or if it's Ed, but they they're casting in their head, Liam Neeson.
3: Oh, it's Ed. Ed, I think. Yeah, he's saying, it, he's like,
2: uh, is he possibly too Irish? I'd watch that. That sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just like Liam Neeson as well.
3: This is one of those things where it's like, I mean, I'll, I'll, talk, I'll talk about it more whenever we get to the next scene. Um, so I'll pick back into it. The next scene we're going to see between Ed and Judd is them at the brick. They're taking apart Ed's script uh he's looking at it he's saying like oh you don't need these parts the girls they aren't integral to the story uh in fact are even attached to the title of the shaman like not (laughs) you know we can change that we can do like a whole bunch of things where the focused audiences are gonna love this because you're gonna hit the right beats that you need to hit to do a story and you know this is gonna sell in hollywood
2: yeah well he he also wants to uh Add like a snowmobile chase with like some guy wielding dual AK 47s and like shooting while he's, I don't know, somehow piloting a snowmobile. Uh, yeah, he's trying to cut down all the women in the script. And yeah, what do you, well, you said it, but he's like, oh, yeah, one more thing, Ed. Does it have to be a shaman? Like, and Ed's like, well, it is called the shaman. And it's funny because earlier in the very opening scene, Ed is talking to Ruthanne when he gets the fax, and it's like, "Oh, he's interested in your script about the shaman. What's that one called?" And Ed's like, uh, <laughs> "The shaman. It's called the shaman." So yeah, it's like, yeah. yeah, we don't know too much about this movie, but we can assume that it's about a shaman. And according to this scene, that's about to change, maybe. So it, it's going like, Ed is losing control of his baby, you know, of this uh, of this script.
3: Right. There's two important things to keep in mind in this scene. Is that The first one, like you mentioned, is that Ed refers to this as his baby. Mm -hmm. So we're going to see a parallel between Ed in this script and Shelly and her real baby right here. Uh, The second thing that we're going to see is that I mentioned a little bit about it, but Judd consistently talks about how we need to remove the women from the scene. They do nothing but separate strength. They're uh, just a hindrance and you want this to be a masculine film where it's appealing to 18 to 35 year olds. You want to have that stuff. So immediately we can, we can gather that it's trying to ascribe to gender norms. It's trying to fill in toward that area to be like, we need you to be within these boundaries and like, we want to explore beyond them. It's yeah. Like we've seen this idea before, perhaps it wasn't nearly as explored in 1994, but like in 2022, We've seen this idea. I'm not trying to harsh on them at it whatsoever. I just wanted to point out that like, this is the idea that they're going for. One thing that I wanted to talk about that I talked about earlier is the idea of like taking apart your, uh, your work, your script. Would you like, how far would you go if you wrote something and like someone came in and was like, Hey, we need to like strip it for parts.
2: Like, would you give it up? It really depends. You know, like. I'm really bad. I'm okay. I don't even want to call myself a writer at this point. Like I don't write a whole lot, but you know, I've written short films and I've directed short films that I've written and I've co-written with people, but um, I do find that I'm really bad at rewriting. So given the prompt of like, Hey, we need to cut a lot of stuff and rewrite. I, even if I agreed with it, I would probably be very bad at trying to make adjustments. So having someone who, wants to change the script and has ideas for how to change it, I would definitely be open to listening to it. But it, I think you're right, Charles, there comes a certain point. Maybe what you're asking is like, would would I do it? Uh, there comes a certain point where either, you know, it's changed so much that it's not the original, you know, it's not its original glory or maybe even, you know, before that, it's just like, it's not the same thing I originally saw. So I'm not as excited to, make this movie or to write this if it's just like not the same, not the original idea, if it's moved too far, but that could be a, th- sorry, just to finish that. It could be a thing to where like, well, maybe the original idea wasn't a good movie anyway. So.
3: Yeah. There's always like that thing where like, we always hear about the stories about like uh, the, the executives messing up some auteur's vision and be right. like, look at the, you know, this nameless faceless uh, entity messed up this individual's vision you know it goes against like an us versus them dichotomy right there but like we never hear about the times in which they actually saved the film mm-hmm. in which they made it like much more better to be like oh no that that director was going nuts like we had to rein him <laughs> in like, that's we true had to, yeah yeah i was just thinking i was like i This is just like a completely hypothetical thing yeah but like if I, I think if i had to like sell one of my things to like a film company i would also want like some sort of uh, producer credit. Like I would have I don't want to just control. give it away. Yeah, you don't yeah, want some sort of like, control there. Yeah, exactly. You just give it away to a film company. You don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. And you're just going to look at it like five years from now and everyone's calling you You're like the worst person ever. And you're like, that wasn't on me. That was on the film company. It's
2: like they paid me for the script and then they rewrote it completely. So, like, it's not me anymore. Yeah.
3: You always hear about those people that, like, flame the authors for, like, casting decisions. You're like, they always have to defend themselves. They're like, I am not in charge of this whatsoever. Yeah. But, yeah. Anyway, going on to the next scene between Ed and Judd.
2: Whoa, real fast. Uh Before we... I, just to cut in, because before we get to that next scene, I just wanted to say Ed appears in a scene off screen. Uh, just a really quick thing. It's like at this baby shower um, that we'll talk about later. Maurice says that they got he got a fax from Ed, and Ed says oh, he's not right. going to be able to make it. I just wanted to put that in there because now Ed is starting to fax people, and it's like he's becoming more of like a Hollywood type just by, you know, osmosis or whatever, by being close to Judd or working with him. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, none of that. You're completely right. Uh, yeah, the next thing that's going to involve them is going to be in Ed's place. And it seems like in this moment, Judd is being brought down toward Ed's level because he's in Ed's environment. He mm. looks over <laughs> his posters and his movies. He notes Peter Bogdanovich and Orson Well posters. And he talks to him and says like, hey, where'd you go to school? He says like, oh, I, I was like down the road. He's like, no, 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 like college. And then he starts talking about like the jungle of adulthood or like, you know, a little bit toward adulthood. You know, he's like, how oh, he have the struggle at Brown and then struggle in Hollywood. But ultimately it's a fight at the end of the day is essentially what he's trying to say.
2: Yeah. And, uh, he's saying how, like part of the reason why he came here, why Judd, came to Alaska, I mean, obviously to meet up with Ed, but he's planning to do like a survival trek, uh, some sort of like touristy thing where like you go and try to survive. Like maybe there's a guide who puts you out on this survival trek. Anyway, he thinks he could learn more about himself by having to survive in like the wilds of Alaska. Cause I guess maybe comparing that to, what it felt like surviving at Brown at college and then surviving in Hollywood. Um, He wants to do it as like a real world, like physical experience.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. He has been living in these like hypothetical situations where he's been doctoring scripts. He's been looking over them, but ultimately those are fictional worlds in which he's having his battles. Now he wants to go have a real battle and that's going to bring us to pretty much his final scene in which Ed is sending him off.
2: Yeah, Ed gives him some directions on like how he's going to get to this. Uh, the I don't know what it is actually. So like, is it? It's either like his cabin or like a meeting place to begin this survival trek. So Judd's leaving Sicily, and Judd even says like, uh, or Ed says, you know, like, are you not planning to come back after the survival trek? And like, you know, you can read my notes then or my changes. And Judd's like, well, I don't really. I don't think, see any point of returning to Sicily unless, you know, we're gonna, we're, you're gonna do these rewrites because again, Judd says basically like, well, he does say, he's like, I would still represent you, Ed, if you um if you didn't do the rewrite, but let me put it this way. I wanna believe in what I'm selling. So like, if you did the rewrites, I could sell it better and I would, I don't know, are we supposed to read this as if like Judd's like, sure, I'll represent you, but it's gonna go nowhere if you don't rewrite or, or are we supposed to read it as like, Judd's like, trying to be polite but he's really not going to represent ed if he doesn't rewrite it i don't well, know
3: <sighs> the way i took it on this character is that initially they might have written him to be too rough because uh, when they're in the brick mm-hmm. that scene ends yeah. <laughs> with him going through ed script and ed is saying how his character the shaman will go through like a transformative sequence he's going to uh change and judd says like what? Like, what does he even stand for then? I hate this guy. And obviously, you know, we're all for the shaman side. We all want to be able to have positive change within our lives and to grow from within. We don't want to be like Judd's character. So maybe at that point, the writers are like, we need to humanize him, which is what brings us into the scene with him in Ed's room. And I think it effectively mm. works. We get yeah. a little bit more background information about what, uh, what, what cogs are running inside this guy's mind, which brings us to the present scene, which is where I want to believe that he earnestly would still help Ed. And he also has two more words after what you had said on that quote. It would help me if I believed in what I am selling. He says human nature. Mm. It's not like he personally like believes that like it's within his own right. He believes that like it's a universal thing that like this is not just found within himself. Everyone believes that. Whether or not that's true, that's you know, a whole other debate. But within him, he thinks that's true. He thinks which is true? He thinks that like everyone has the same belief that he has. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So that is where we're setting up right here. And I think the subtext underneath this line is that Ed is now going to like conform to gender roles. Or mm. at the very least, he's going to conform to societal roles because yeah. the major talking points of the script were talking about how, number one, they wanted it to be more action. They wanted it to um, flow to a lot appeal, more better. To appeal
2: to like young men too. Yeah. Exactly. Macho. Yeah, sure.
3: right. They want to write off the women and the script is his baby. So ultimately what Ed is doing is that he's going to rear a child that's going to go into the world that is going to ascribe to Judd's notion of how to live, which yeah. is going to like perpetuate the cycle
2: societal norms or whatever. Yeah. His his baby, his script is gonna conform to societal norms. Yeah, but yeah, you know, you were talking about how this is sort of a bit of a turning point for Judd in that like he's he starts the story as just like a very kind of despicable character and we kind of like start to understand him better by the end. And I did write down, honestly, I think the the departure here is a lot more amicable than I would have expected. Like I did not, I did not see The, you know, Judd saying, I'll still represent you, you know, but it's, I I can't make any promises. Um, And then Ed even says, you know what, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna rewrite the script. So it seems to end pretty amicably um, for better or for worse here. Uh, I like that Ed quotes Woody Allen. He says, you know, it's worse than dog eat dog. It's dog doesn't return dog's phone calls. And then Judd responds with, is that guy's life a train wreck or what? So this is like, uh, I think already (laughs) after a lot of those sexual abuse allegations and like, uh, you know, like court dates and when Woody Allen was, you know, being tried for that. um, Right. Which is, crazy.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. They must have been, uh, the script writers must have been like, we had so many Woody Allen lines. (laughs) (laughs) Season one we're screwed. (laughs) Um, What what I want to dig into on that particular line is that I think that Judd knows that the business that he's in is brokering some pretty messed up stuff. I want to say that mm-hmm. he kind of knows that cuz he he knows that what Woody Allen is doing is messed up. It's not like he says like, "Hey man, when you got all the power, you can do what you want." Like yeah. he's not. He knows that it's wrong too. And he even says like, "Hey, it's your baby, Ed." Like, "I'm just here in order to turn this into a movie." And in order for me to turn this into a movie, I got to follow these universal rules I didn't write them that's just the way they are
2: yeah he's like playing by the system yeah
3: right that's why I think that Judd's not necessarily um a villainous character he's simply one that's operating underneath these assumed roles and that's why I like I kind of like his character
2: well unfortunately he doesn't last very long I mean he's leaving Sicily but we do hear about him I think in the next scene in uh Ed's plot line let's see Oh, wait, actually, I'm kind of jumping ahead a bit because the next time we see Ed, he is doing the rewrites. Like Dave comes to, I think Ed is like, actually, yeah, Ed's like sitting on this carpeted stairway in the brick. I don't think we get to see that stairway very often, but it's nice that he's like kind of lounging there. I like that uh setting there. But Dave is like going over to Ed and he's like, oh yeah, how's it going, Ed? Ed has revealed that he's already removed the shaman from the script. He's working for Pace, and action now. And he says, there's already a murder on page three. And then there's like that. So that's, that's really fast. And then, and then there's like a, a nunchuck fight in a crack house or something. <laughs> you can just see Dave's reaction. He's kind of unsure about it all. And Ed is already starting to sound like Judd, like that Hollywood type. That's pretty much that scene, right?
3: Yeah, pretty much. I, the only thing I wanted to talk about was that uh, Dave offers Ed Tureen, of marmot?
2: Yeah, there's a couple different Tureen. Um, what does that mean? So I honestly don't know because uh, I think in the subtitles, it's spelled T-U-R-E-E-N. And then mm. I also looked up Tureen on Google. Like I think, t- okay, I could be wrong, but I think the spelling that they use in the subtitles is referencing like a dish and then like like an actual uh, piece of dishware. But I think there might be a, a, a dish of like a... Um, there might be a there might be food called terrine just named after that dishware, like it's cooked in a certain pot or something. I'm not sure. And then, but then there's also another spelling t u r r i n e, and again I could be mixing these up. One of them is like re- in reference to this like dishware or pot. The other one is in reference to like I can't I it kind of looks like spam in a way. I'm not really sure what it is. Like some sort of like neat preparation. So I'm guessing that's what the tureen of marmot is. Um, and what it looks like when Ed like touches it on the plate, it kind of looks like a slice of s- spam in a way, but.
3: But it's not actually marmot though, right?
2: Uh, but I would assume it is because we're in Alaska, if it's made of marmot, you know.
3: Can you, I do not even know you could eat that. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe in the, in, <laughs>
2: out in the Alaskan wilds, maybe. Uh, uh. But yeah, I don't know. There's a lot, there's t- another mention of terrine somewhere, like I think at the baby shower. And again, I don't know what what, what it is they're talking about. Yeah.
3: Mm. Okay. Well, that brings us to the final scene (laughs) involving Ed, which is going to be him at the brick. He's still going over his script, and Walt comes in, Mm -hmm. and Walt was saying that he was laying down some traps with a friend, and they come across a busted car, like a rented car. I don't know how he knew it was rented. Maybe Hmm. there's like a license plate on it or something?
2: Yeah. Maybe Um, some sort of sticker, or yeah. Something like that.
3: Yeah. And then they followed the tracks, and then they found what was left of Judd. He says that Some dogs, a pack of wild dogs (laughs) got him, which references back to that Woody Allen quote.
2: Yeah. And I take this, I read this as uh, the writers just getting out some frustration, you know, in in fiction against like those demonic, evil Hollywood producer types. It's like, this is our way of getting back at you. (laughs) Like we write a character (laughs) who gets mauled to death and ripped apart by wild dogs pretty messed up pretty terrible uh end for for judd to to find himself there
3: yeah it definitely seems like a very (laughs) uh revenge fic thing for them to write they're like oh look this is what we want of you to get devoured by wolves (laughs) right there And like I mentioned earlier, like, you know, we always hear about those stories about those executives that mess up all the things. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Like, I think when um, those leaked emails happened at Sony, (laughs) I think there was some like ridiculous ideas being thrown around where they were like, you know, like chain emails being like, hey, what if like, uh, what if Spider-Man was like a DJ? Because kids like (laughs) listen to electronic music now. And like, that was being like seriously floated. So we can see that like, yeah, of course, there's going to be like delusional uh, people in positions of power but there's one person in particular that i've always admired and he was like a suit uh his name was rick ludwin and he worked at NBC for a great number of years i want to say at least like 40 years i want to say and this man was famous for backing jerry Seinfeld's show seinfeld mm. whenever it initially ran uh they thought it was trash The <laughs> other people and they were like hey we're not gonna have this we should like cancel it and Rick Ludwin stuck up for him. He was like, no, no, no. I think there's something there. I want to believe that there's something there. I have an instinct toward this. And it turns out that he was right. And that wasn't like a fluke because he also did it at the same time for Conan O'Brien. Whenever Mm -hmm. Conan O'Brien got late night uh, for the first couple of years, it was not going great. Conan was really nervous. The writers weren't comfortable with what Conan could do. All around, you could say that it was a failure. But rick could detect something within it it was like a diamond in the rough and rick would always write up notes and be like no i think that like just keep going it uh, doing it this way don't do that though what you guys just did on that last <laughs> night don't ever do that but like that other sketch even though it didn't get a lot of laughs i think there's something there i think you should continue that and he helped nurture conan o'brien until you know he got to be successful and everything that is like the prime example of somebody that understands the medium that they're working in and can provide notes while also being hands-off enough to let them bloom and nurture onto their own. So I think that there's always like a give and pull right there. And I know that Mm -hmm. like, you know, at the time of writing, it's 1994. Rick Lowell was just doing the things that I'm talking about. So it's a hard act to juggle. But ultimately what I'm trying to say is that like, I think that there's some merit behind the people that wear the suits.
2: Yeah, I think what I could say uh, off of that is like maybe, maybe in some situations you might need a suit, someone like that to sort of foster. But oftentimes, maybe the way that we perceive them today, and it, maybe it's just like more often than not, this is true, is that they're kind of useless. But when they are useful is when they can find something that is, uh, they, you know, they can find that magic and they see it and it's not immediately recognizable. And like the public maybe won't, wouldn't even be able to pick it up unless those uh, those networks focused them. And were like, hey, this is something that we want to market and put out there. And then like it sort of catches people's attention that way. But I don't know, yeah, there's obviously good and bad. And we're hoping to be lucky enough that we get uh, someone in a position of power that is like uh, Ludwin, like you said.
3: Right. Yeah, it's definitely like a marriage between commercial and yeah. uh, artistry, which has always been the conversation throughout like all of time. And it's not like a new yeah. thing. I think that bothers me sometimes whenever I read about people that bemoan about the state of commercial. And we used to read ads like live on television before <laughs> the actors got on set for like. Um, I love uh Yeah, we we're t- the, uh, the I Lu- love Lucy.
2: Yeah, we watched uh, being the Ricardos and they're just like doing the straight up ad reads in front of Yeah. Yeah.
3: There's like a live ad read right there. It's always existed. It's always going to exist because you need to make money. Yeah. Otherwise, how else are you gonna put on the show? So I, I know.
2: Communism like, is I, the answer, Charles.
3: I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm always like a little bit defensive for the people with right, the business right. acumen. I'm always like, I'm not saying they're right. I'm just saying they have some It's use. important,
2: you know, <laughs> things are important. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. So Br- Judd is dead, uh, but he has left behind his Filofax And uh, he's given to Ed as like a hand-me-down or something, a a memento. Um, But Ed is, he says something like, oh, wow, now I got to find a new agent. And Maurice standing beside him is like, Ed, what is the matter with you? There's a dead man here. Like, and you're thinking about your agent and Ed's like, okay, you're right. Sorry. I was, I don't know what's going on in my head. I mean, it's true. He's got to find a new agent, but yeah. (laughs) But this guy was just like, uh, viciously killed. So um but that's the end of that scene and the next time we see Ed is he's going to deliver to Maggie a bunch of scripts like he's got them all enveloped ready to be sent out to agents and he's turns out he uses Judd's Philofax to contact other agents in the um in their in his address book there and he also mentions he's decided to stick with his original script because he like went back and read it after after he did the rewrite he read the original draft and, you know, that's the, that's the one he'd like to keep. And, um, he talks to Maggie about being like a, you know, one day you might be a good mom or something. We could touch on that, uh, after Shelly's plotline, I think. But, uh, but yeah, what do you think about, at least for Ed, the conclusion here? What do you think about that?
3: Uh, it's all right. Cause ultimately he does borrow a little bit from, uh, Judd. Mm-hmm. He takes his, uh. His ability to connect with other individuals, because otherwise, like, you're never going to be successful if you can't even do that part. Yeah. So he at least picks up on that. And he's like, all right, well, like, I have these contact information. I'm going to build upon that. I'm going to use a little bit of what Judd taught me, but I'm still going to remain true to myself. So while it's not like a groundbreaking story. It fulfills its niche, like it fulfills what it set out to do, which is to complete the circle for Ed, made him realize that he has like self-worth within his script, and that his baby doesn't have to be influenced by possibly a very negative thing.
2: Yeah, it doesn't have to conform. It's a, it's beautiful because it is so personal to Ed. That's really what the script is, right? Like when he, when he first started writing the first lines that we saw basically seems very modeled after himself, a filmmaker mm-hmm. and a shaman combined. But yeah, so that so that's Ed for this storyline. Let's really get into the baby blues here with Shelly and all the other plot lines that sort of wrap around that, like Joel and Maggie and, and all that going on. But we get, uh, uh, I think, in preparation for Shelly's uh, delivery, you know, there's also gonna be a baby shower. Turns out that... Eve is back. Eve is back in in Sicily. Well, I think uh, Charles is potentially one of Charles's favorite characters here. She's returned and we remember Eve, she's already given birth to Aldridge. I forgot about like what the baby's name was, Aldridge. That's that's her baby. But anyway, you know, Eve's here to maybe help potentially with the baby shower. I think Maggie's here as well, sort of organizing this. Um, Oh, I was trying to remember like, where is this scene set? And now I know it's there. It's Maggie and Eve walking down a street in Sicily. Eve is doing her laundry because she has a laundry basket. What is up with So that, much man? laundry <laughs> So much laundry in this season. Um, oh
3: gosh. Well, her laundry <laughs> basket at least is a little bit interesting because the laundry basket is uh, baby blue. Mm. and there's like a pink blanket within it. so it's going off of the two genders.
2: And genders there. very nice. Yeah. So I think that's basically, I I can't remember the exact like text inside this scene, but the overall idea is Eva's back. Maggie wants her help with the baby shower. Maybe we also get the sense that Eva's just like super busy in this episode because that does unfold. But I don't know if we get that in this scene, I would assume.
3: Uh, A little bit. She's like a little bit, she's not domineering, Mm -hmm. but she's at least responsible because she's telling Maggie to be like, oh, no, you we can't have any caffeine. We can't have any of uh, too much sugar. So we should have decaffeinated tea, sugar free jam. So I don't think that she's like controlling. I think that she's just got a little bit of a eye in the sky of how the whole situation should play out because she herself had a baby.
2: Yeah, Maggie is very idealistic about this whole shower and Eve is like realistic. She's like, well, this is what actually having a baby's like. Like I know, because look, I've got Aldrich with me here. Uh, So yeah, she's sort of the realist to Maggie's idealist here. I think, yeah, that's definitely what's going on. But uh, the next scene is from the soundbite that we played at the very beginning of the podcast. Joel and Shelly are listening to the baby's heartbeat. And Shelly says, you know... If it's a girl, I think we're going to name it Miranda Bliss. And, uh, you know, they talk, well, we played it in the soundbite. They talk about the type of delivery. Shelly, the soundbite that we played ended with Shelly saying, let's just wing it and see what happens. But Joel is like, no, this is serious. Like, you got to start thinking now. And we can see that this is placing some anxiety on Shelly. The seriousness and the inevitability of um, of this this fact that's going to happen. She's going to give birth and it's going to be pretty soon. And she's still never been in a hospital, she says. So like, it's kind of a frightening realization.
3: Yeah. She's mostly afraid of like how procedural it is. Mm. Because initially I think she's doing all right. Like she looks okay in the scene. But then when Joel starts talking about like the... Uh, process of what you have to do like the quote-unquote the paperwork that you have to fill out Mm -hmm. that's the thing that freaks out shelly and i think that either there's ways to read this either she doesn't like being boxed in or she's not realizing how serious the entire situation is to the point where you need procedures i think it can be read in either way Mm -hmm. but yeah, that's essentially what that scene is, and we're gonna pick on to the next scene, which is gonna be Joel, Chris, and Maggie at the brick. Maggie is planning the baby shower, and right off the bat, we can get conflict between her and Joel because I believe she wants to do like a like a flower arrangement of some sort, and Joel uh, dismisses the idea. He's like, "What is this prom? No." And she gives him a look. And that's like a right at the beginning. So we can tell that Maggie is not going to be conducive to what Joel is saying. And they have this whole conversation about, you know, whether childbirth is a miracle, what the psychology of it is. The long short of it is, is that Joel thinks it's something natural for women to want. And Maggie takes offense to that because she doesn't naturally want that. Therefore, Joel's insinuating that Maggie is not a woman.
2: Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of stuff happening between Joel and Maggie in this scene. She calls Joel a sexist for diagnosing her as such. I was like, uh, uh, I think she says something like, men are always attributing female behavior to some sort of phantom condition, like hysteria. Like, you know, calling this like strange instinct that women have to be mothers or whatever. She doesn't like being looped in with all the other women and just saying like, all women have this, desire or this phantom condition, as she says. Um, And Joel's like not trying to stir the pot. He's like, whoa, 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 let's slow down for a second. I did not mean it that way. I don't know if he actually apologizes in this scene. He definitely does multiple times later in the episode, but I think he's just trying to like, he's trying to not be, not not trying to offend her. You know, he's trying to step it back a bit, but she definitely storms off really quick.
3: Right. And one way to read this is that just like with um, Judd in his nature of like, it was just within his nature. It's kind of a scene in Joel where he didn't realize that it could be offensive at the moment because to him, he just thought that was like a natural law. He was like, yeah, this is the way it works out. And Maggie doesn't prescribe to that belief, which is what offends her. And we can see that it's like a miscommunication between there, whereas Joel naturally thought it was going to be this way. Maggie naturally thought it was not going to be that way. And like you said, there's definitely apologies. Being done in this episode because in the next scene between them, we see Maggie and Joel outside where the background is actually Rosalind's cafe. It's kind of neat.
2: Yeah, yeah. We don't get that very often, and it's very—it's like they're kind of close to it, or at least the lens is like telephoto, so they appear closer to um to the background. Yeah, I like I like featuring that.
3: Right, and this is where Joel earnestly apologizes to Maggie. He's like, "Look, I really didn't mean what I said. I don't think that." if you don't have a baby, you're a failure. And again, another miscommunication happens where Maggie's like, failure, what what do you mean by that? Like, do you think I'm a failure for not having a baby?
2: (laughs) Yeah, and yeah, exactly. Uh, It starts to fall apart once again. He's just trying to apologize, but the words he's choosing are not, working well with Maggie here. I can't actually remember the conclusion. Like, I bet Maggie storms off again, but I'm not really sure. Ah, eh, pretty much. Joel Joel certainly, yeah, certainly makes it worse. But when they first meet up, she's carrying like a, um, looks like a cake box. Um, and he's like, what is that? And she says, it's Jemima Puddle Duck. I was like, what is, I I had to look that up. It's, have you heard of this before? No, what is that? It's like a children's story, like a children's book. And so I was Uh like, wait, so she's got a kid's book in a cake box. Of course, I mean, you know this already, Charles, because you just watched the episode, but the cake is designed to look like Jemima Puddled. I was so, I was very confused. I was like, well, first off, the title is a very confusing name, like a funny name that I had never heard before, but, um, But yeah, it makes sense when you see it later. Uh, Oh, you know what? Yeah, so Chris, the next time we see here is like kind of Chris, because as we saw in that first scene where they're all sitting in the brick, as you said, they're talking about like, is childbirth a miracle? Or as Chris says, is it a miracle or is it the most natural thing in the world? You know, miracles are defined by, you know, some sort of like unnatural, supernatural, powerful experience. But uh, birth is kind of... You know, that is nature. That's um, that's just the most natural thing in the world, he says. But so when we pick it back up with Chris, he's trying to get in touch with his inner woman. Um, yeah, this is him on the radio, I think, right?
3: Yeah, he's making an address on K-Bear. And this is the thing that like, it doesn't frustrate me because I know it's in 1994. Oh, yeah. I know that they yes. don't have like theories read. They don't have like any, <laughs> um, like it's just behind the times, which is fine. I get that. It just has like a lot of things being interwoven in Chris's speech. Somebody's saying is like he has a part within him, his inner woman, and it's an unconscious part that is, as he says, unconscious. It's not something that he's activated. And he wants to rouse it, he wants to tap into it. But in his mind, what he thinks tapping into inner woman is being like quote unquote like gentle or soft yeah. or anything like that that's not necessarily, like, I
2: don't... Yeah, he's, like, ascribing...
3: Yeah, I don't want to tap into this right. too much, but, like, that's just, like, general terms. Like, I don't think we can, like, prescribe that necessarily. Because I think that, like, ultimately what I think is, is, like, we should all be kind to each other. I don't yeah. think that's, like, a gender thing. Like, that's just, like, you should strive to be kind, and, and that's end of sentence right there. And again, I don't want to get too much into this because it's a very complex and nuanced subject in which, like... uh neither of us are very equipped to do on a podcast that is meant <laughs> yeah. to discuss northern exposure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I was just going to keep it really broad and say that, like, Chris says a line. He says, it's not good enough to say, hey, I'm a good egg. I need to bring this metaphor even further. And it's a very interesting word choice that he uses right there. Egg.
2: Egg. Okay, yeah. Just because... Uh you know, childbirth is, you know, breaking out of your egg too, um, in a way, you know, a new, egg eggs are symbolism for birth, you know, obviously. Um, but just to kind of touch on, uh, again, I I agree. I don't think we need to go any further, but what Chris is, what's maybe kind of a little bogus about what's happening in the scene, Chris is assigning certain attributes to the female gender. The, the one that stuck out to me is Chris says that he feels asleep at the aesthetic wheel, um, which is I think he's suggesting that um, you know our, our artistry is a is a feminine quality. Um, but again, you know these are kind of it's I don't think it's as black and white as uh, he's bringing it out. Again, maybe this is just a '90s thing, but definitely doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, to be broadcasting this on K-Bear today, maybe, but whatever. We can <laughs> we can table that for now. The general idea is like Chris is, uh, at best, we can just say he's really fascinated by the whole idea of childbirth and how that that is, a um, uh, you know, something that m- many women will go through. Right. wants to kind of connect to that somehow.
3: And we're going to see that fascination be brought into the, I guess, like act two of this entire thing, mm-hmm. which is where... We're gonna find everybody at that baby shower. They're all gathered around. They're showing gifts. Um, I think like the first gift went alright. Like it was like natural to what you would give in a baby shower. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a it's a breast pump. It's a breast pump. I remember. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's like a practical tool that everyone thinks of
2: and chris is like uh very curious about it almost too involved in this conversation like people are like (laughs) uh sure chris yeah like (laughs) right he's
3: looking through it and joel gives her like a reality check because he gives her an ice pack which is meant to be used for after giving birth it's something you generally like it doesn't like pop off the top of your mind he's not wrong right like joel's definitely right like that's something that you would use It's just like it's another stark reminder to Shelley that hey, this is happening. Like you're actually giving birth, and you need to think about the aftermath, the ramifications, (laughs)
1: the aftermath,
2: yeah,
3: having a child right there, and that freaks her out.
2: Yeah, the aftermath, as you said, exactly. Like it's uh, it's for the stitches, he says. So it's the harsh reality that you know childbirth is beautiful, but um, also you know. Lots of pain, lots of blood. <laughs> it's gonna be uh, you know, it's scaring Shelly right now. So uh, maybe not the best thing to 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 unwrap right right at that moment. And and it's funny because Ruth Ann's gift is next, and you can tell Shelly's like really just even nervous to open this now because she's already opened the ice pack and Ruth Ann's like. Shelly, it's okay. It's just hooded bath towels, and Shelly's like, "Oh, great, great, good." <laughs> you know, so relieved to hear that it's not um, a reminder of this pain and and the and stitches.
3: <laughs> right. Uh, continuing on within the same scene, we see Maurice turn on the television, and they're watching football, which is traditionally a very masculine sport. Yeah. Right there. So. Already, we're going to see like a divide between uh, the men and the women right here. That's going to be established in here because right after that happens, Eve walks into the door and I don't think that Eve is necessarily going against this idea. I actually think that Eve is presenting the idea of what nurturing a child actually is because she comes in a little bit titsy and she's saying like, I'm sorry, I was like having to feed the baby. I was having to do all these things. I didn't have enough time to wrap the gift we're seeing the reality of what it is to have a child, yeah. and she's representing that. I don't think that she's necessarily representing uh, the entire uh, female spectrum.
2: Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like another perspective on childbirth and just being a mom. It's like, you know, you don't have any time a lot of the time. Uh, and her gift to Shelly is... Um, I think it's a, well, it's, I know though, I wrote down the line that she says, it's got oral and rectal thermometers. So it's some sort of thermometer device, but again, like sort of like a, 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 a realistic gift that reminds you of the reality. You know, <laughs> later Shelly says like, I don't want to have to use a rectal thermometer or something, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. So, so we got Eve back in with her perspective, her side of the, of the spectrum here. And later at this baby shower again, they're like going to eat food. And Chris is talking about, you know, like I've read or I've I, as I understand it, like you don't want to overeat cause you'll be like vomiting and regurgitating food. And if you have too much food, you know, it might require an emergency C-section or something. So <laughs> definitely, you know, Shelly's like, I think Shelly's like going up to get some food and they're all just like, it's kind of bumming her out, I guess.
3: Right. That is, it's, it's doing two parts because it's bumming her out, like you said, and Chris is also kind of. Uh, overstepping his boundaries because yeah. they're going to sit down and they're going to talk about like the various things that you need to do. And Chris is saying like, Oh wait, hang on. You're talking about like an amnio hook? Let me, let me explain, which in present day terms, you would call that mansplaining. You would call it as like a male character that's <laughs> over-explaining to some concept that a woman already understands. And there's like a, you know, it's wrong. And it's kind of unique that they tapped into this idea in 1994
2: yeah. Oh, you mean like that they're they're recognizing mansplaining because they all kind of turn right. on Chris pretty quickly. Like uh, I thought it was really funny when you're talking about this whole amnio hook thing. And Chris is like, he talks about this urban legend thing he heard. He's like, I heard like this, uh, my friend of my friend, uh, she, she got a C-section and they had to take out her bladder and her liver to do the delivery. And then after the delivery, they put it back in, but they put him in the wrong order. And Eva's like, <laughs> he was like, that's medically impossible. Like, shut the hell up. What are you and uh, what Chris says, look, I'm just trying to get closer to my womanness. ness And Eve says, then go out and cut your salary in half. So I thought that was pretty good.
3: Well, all of this conversation bums Shelly out. She decides to get some fresh air. She steps outside of the, um, is this being held at Maurice's place? Where, where is this cabin?
2: I think it's Maurice's house. Yeah, I would assume just like the way it looks and how big it is and the exterior. She's like on the um, the deck outside, you know? She ends up walking off out into the woods, but we do see also outside. Most of the men have gathered outside. I guess as you were talking about how earlier Maurice puts on the football game because he's kind of bored with this whole baby shower stuff. He he goes to the more masculine, manly associated sports, uh, I guess. But it's funny now all the guys are outside popping fireworks for some reason. <laughs> like uh, yeah,
3: it's a it's an outdated thing. We're like men must love like blowing things up. It's like I'm. An, I yeah kind of would not be there <laughs> it's pretty
2: it's pretty dumb but it's i think it's funny because it's like it's kind of dumb like that but cuz they're just saying like men are just dumb and they're excited by fireworks but i'm assuming also because we were saying this is the air date of this episode is around the new year so they probably either have a bunch of fireworks left over from new years or more than likely they might have been shooting this episode around new year so they just have the fireworks but it's cool i like that they included the fireworks here Something we did skip really quickly. Uh, It's okay to talk about it out of order really, but we can go back and just say it real fast. But um, back at the baby shower inside, um, Maggie is talking with Eve and Aldrich all of a sudden, like um, maybe peas or I don't know, something happens and like, oh, it's something to do with like the cake. Aldrich is eating the cake. And so Eve has to step away to go grab some things to clean up. And Maggie is left holding Aldrich. And it's just, uh, I just wanted to include that in there because in this moment, Maggie seems very uncomfortable holding the baby. And of course, Aldrich is like crying. Um, (laughs) It's just not, it's not a good look for Maggie here.
3: Right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for including that. I forgot about that. Uh, Yeah, the next thing that we're going to see is Shelly wandering through the woods and she stumbles upon some uh, voices and she keeps following them. And it turns out that it's, you know, another patented Northern Exposure dream sequence. It's going to involve a variety of famous uh, mothers. Yeah, they're all mothers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it's pretty cool. We got Regina King, great actor. Uh, Regina King as Mother Nature. And it's funny because she's just kind of dressed in like a leather jacket, just very like kind of like hip clothing for the time. And she's supposed to be this, you know, eternal goddess or something, you know, but it's pretty cool how she's represented this way. And also there is Medea, um, Olympias, I think is her name. Basically um, Alexander the Great's mom and uh, Queen Victoria, who, well, she says in this episode, she had like nine kids. um, So she's a bit of a mother, but also I believe she's like one of the longest ruling, if not the longest ruling queen um, of England. But... (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, they're all kind of gathered around. It's like a support group in a way. And and Mother Nature's like, here, let me give you some decaf. Like they have like a, a pot of decaf going, like the kind of the kind of pot you'd see at a diner. And um, yeah, they're they're here to talk about Shelly's fears of uh, childbirth, of being a mother, all that.
3: Yeah. Shelly assumes that they're the suture of her fears, but they're not going to do that they're not going to like tell her that it's going to be okay they're just here to present reality and that like childbirth is like kind of in between a miracle and also a natural thing like i I think that's like ultimately what they're trying to say they're saying like you want to get off this ride but it's not stopping it's just like it can be the thing that defines you and I know it's going to freak you out, but the good thing is, is that it's going to be in your nature yeah. to want to protect your child. Again, bringing up the idea of nature.
2: Yeah. And um, you know, she's like, I think mother nature says like, you know, I thought about that and I included this little perk in your personality and in your, in your like in your inhumanity that you have this instinct to take care of it. I've got a soundbite of parts of this scene. I'll, I'll play it out here.
1: Honey, it's just war stories. The reason why you hear all that stuff about back labor and face presentations is because they make good drama. I mean, you never hear about the baby who just popped out. Right, girls? That's right. Like, you never hear about the soldier who didn't see no action. You want me to tell you everything is going to be okay, don't you? Yeah. I won't do that. Uh Some days are going to be great. Other days, you're going to want to just jump off a building. Mm-hmm. But keep this in mind, there is a little gizmo I threw into your nature. You have an instinct to take care of things. Everybody does, even men. Men just can't remember where they put it half the time. Look, let me tell you why I set it up this way. Babies are cute. Children are cute. But they are also a gigantic pain in the butt. And one of the things that keeps you from dropping them in the nearest volcano is that you had to work too hard to get them. You had to cry, you had to scream, you had to sweat, you had to cuss out healthcare officials. Sing it. And when that's all over with, you'll be willing to put up with a lot more from your kid. Mm -hmm. So there's no getting out of the labor gig. Just remember what Julius Caesar said when he was crossing the Rubicon. Alea Iacta S. The die is cast.
2: It's too late now, my dear. I didn't realize this at first, but in that scene, there's a really cool sort of musical score going on. It's, like, very minimal, sort of, like, synthesized, weird, like, bleeps and bloops. But, yeah, it kind of blends in with the way the birds are chirping and gives it a very sort of, like, dreamy... I mean, it is a dream sequence, but a very kind of weird, supernatural, dreamy feeling.
3: Why do you think it keeps cutting to Medea, who is the one that um, committed... um, (sighs) How do you pronounce that word? Infanticize? Infanticide? Infanticide.
2: Yeah. Infanticide. Yeah.
3: It keeps cutting to her. Is that like,
2: are we supposed to read deeper into this? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't think about that. Cause like she is, she's the one out of all of them there. She kind of seems like the strange one. Like, cause I think even uh, Shelly says at one point, like, why is she there? And it's like, oh, don't worry about her. She's got, she's this or something. Um, I don't know. Honestly, that is kind of, that's a good, good thing to, pick in on. I'm not sure. Did she say this in the soundbite? But I, I liked, I know it's in the scene. I'm not sure if it was in the soundbite, but she says, uh, Mother Nature says like, because childbirth is so painful and so hard and so difficult, you know, like babies can be like terrible to raise, but because it was so hard to bring them into this world, you know, that just makes them all the more valuable to you. Like, you know, you don't want to (laughs) sacrifice anything that was that hard to, um, to bring to life. Oh, and then that's why Shelly's like, well, what about her, Medea, who killed her? Right, right. (laughs) That's what happened. She's like, well, she's like the odd person out.
3: And it's also like, I don't know how true this is, but like, I heard that, like, babies are actually, like, pretty tough.
2: Oh, well, yeah, like, pretty resilient. I mean, I would hope yeah. so because, uh, yeah, you don't want, you know, they they seem also very vulnerable, so they need to be a little resilient or else, like, yeah, the survival rate, um, yeah, that's rough.
3: So this picks off back into reality where we're going to see everyone at the baby shower is searching for Shelly because, remember, she kind of just wandered off into the woods by herself. And... Hauling expresses uh, remorse. He was saying, Mm -hmm. like, I was popping, like, fireworks at my own baby shower. I was being irresponsible. Uh, You know, he says all that. That's not the important part, though. The important part is where Joel and Maggie meet up between two trees. So they're framed between them. So they're really close, very tightly packed in. Yeah. And they reveal to each other, saying they're like, neither one of them really wants children because children just aren't something that floats within them.
2: Yeah. Like, again, Joel is here to apologize to Maggie and she's like, look, it's okay. You're, you're totally off, Joel. You don't even get it. Like, it's not even that. Like, truth be told, it's hard for me to admit, but I don't even want to have a baby. I don't like babies. Um, I do have a soundbite, so I'll play that real fast because uh, basically that's all that happens in this. I mean, that's what is happening in the scene. We just described it, but I do like the things that Maggie says. Like the dialogue is really fun.
0: The fact that you have this this... Powerful, you're to have a child. I mean, come on, I, I know that's got to be tough.
2: Flashman, you're, you're way off. O'Connell, please, trust me. I, I understand.
1: Flashman, I hate babies. What? I do. Oh, okay, okay, maybe hate is too strong of a word. I, I dislike them intensely. Look, they're, they're, they're slobbery and they're whiny and, and they look at you, you know, just like they can see right into your soul. And they're unpredictable, and they smell, and they're noisy, and the world revolves around them. And why? I don't get it. They're not interesting. They can't tell jokes. They don't have opinions, and they're boring. You know, they're just boring and annoying. And I don't want to have one, and I, I don't want to be around one. And, and I just don't want to discuss this anymore. All right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I got news for you. I hate them myself.
2: I just really liked what she was when she says. Um, you know the the whole world revolves around babies, and why? They're not interesting. They don't. They, they can't tell jokes. Like they're boring. They're annoying. <laughs> I just thought that was really good.
3: <laughs> right? Yeah, and then immediately after that, they move from those two trees and they start walking. And Joel says, "Like, I guess, like the reason that you want to procreate in the first place is because people." fool themselves into believing that this is the ultimate form of love like you love each other so much that you need like a tangible representation of it which would be procreation Mm -hmm. so ultimately what he's trying to say is that like just because you don't fulfill all of the uh you know the the norms and the standards of what other people put on you it doesn't make you incomplete it doesn't make you any less human
2: yeah, and he suggests like maybe like it, it only happens when you find the right person to again, kind of underlining like as an audience, we're watching this. It's like, oh, Joel and Maggie, they're meant to be together. So yeah, it's it's a nice little moment. And yeah, just talking about love and talking about childbirth as an ultimate form of love is, is an interesting concept here. Uh, they do end up finding Shelly. She was like, she fell asleep against a log and uh It's actually, they find her at like the dead of night. Like it's dark outside. It's a
3: full moon.
2: Yeah, dang. I
3: think that's so (laughs) interesting. Why why do you think it's a full moon?
2: Uh, Well, I don't know. I didn't think about it like that, but uh, since you're bringing it up, maybe a moon, um, it it, uh, resembles an egg in a way. I guess it's not, a full moon is the opposite of a new moon. And like a new moon, if you said new moon, that would make me think of like a new life, you know, birth and stuff. But a full moon does... You know, evoke the image of a white egg. So,
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, no, no, no. I love where you took that. Um, I took it as a, like something that was very natural that helped lead them to Shelly. Because originally yeah. they were searching in the day and mm-hmm. it, it got to so long that the moon can come out and the moonlight helped guide them. I know they have it's flashlights cool. and everything, <laughs> but I think that's like another way of reading into this scene. But Yeah. Anyway, they find Shelly, They look over her. Uh, I think Maggie remarks, saying, "Like, you know, what well, were like in the what was in the salad? Was there any mushrooms in there? Was there something that made you hallucinate and wander off into this off path?" And Joel takes a look at her and makes sure that she's all right.
2: Well, about the salad, it's actually Shelly who's like. Shelly says to Maggie, "What kind of mushrooms were in that salad?" And and Maggie says, there wasn't any salad. Oh, right. But I was like, what What are they talking about right now? I I don't, is that supposed to be like a um, magic mushroom joke or like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, But she seems fine. And uh, yeah, I mean, um, Shelly does not give birth this episode, but later I think the next day, she approaches Joel on the street and she hands him like a little piece of paper or something. She says it's her birth plan. Um, she's, she's ready. Like she's got it all figured out. Like what, you know, epidural or whatever, like the things that she wants, like her plan for giving, for delivering this baby. And I thought it's cool too. She's got very, obviously she's got the little baby earrings, like on her earrings, there's little plastic babies. I thought that was fun.
3: Right. And what's really unique is that she says that she kind of came into this, I wouldn't say epiphany, but like into this mindset at breakfast. She said, like, she said, like, oh, that mm-hmm. thing, like, resembled mm-hmm. this thing when I was at breakfast. Again, hearkening back to the idea that Ed was saying at the very beginning of the episode, how, like, yeah. you know, family, breakfast, those two ideas kind of come together. It's like the institutional norms that bind us, stuff like that.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I like that a lot. And, you know, the whole institutional norms with everything. Wow. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. That's basically Shelly at the end there, but we do get a moment with Maggie at the very end. As we said, Ed is delivering his scripts. They're all like put together in the envelopes, ready to send off to the post office. And um, he says to Maggie, you know, I I think you'd make a good mom at some point. And Maggie's like, no, why do you say that? He's like, well, you take care of your plane so well. And she says, well, Ed, that's just a plane. It's not like a kid. It's completely different. And Ed says, well, no, I mean, they're kind of pretty much the same thing or so. I I forget like the exact wording.
1: I wonder if you'll ever want to have a baby Maggie. Sure. One day. Because you'd be a really good mom. What makes you say that? Well, the way you take care of your plane. Well, yeah, but that's that's totally different. Well, how? Well, I better be going... Thanks, Maggie. See ya. See you
2: later. He says that, and he's like, um, "Well, see you later, Maggie." You know, but you know, <laughs> the, the idea that he placed, uh he sort of brings, he broaches this idea that is now in Maggie's head that uh, she has this instinct, maybe, to take care of things. I guess that's what they're trying to point out here. Yeah, I think they're
3: trying to say, like, um, just because you didn't like literally bring a child into this world, doesn't mean that you yourself do not have value, nor do you right. lack the traits. To yeah, be a mother, yeah. you know they're trying to convey that idea.
2: That's nice. Yeah, like she's she isn't herself a mother. She's not like bearing a child right now, but she has like wonderful maternal qualities that that Ed can see in her and that he can admire. Uh, and the ending of the episode. Am I am I jumping ahead too far? Is it okay? No, it's no, hard? it's a wild. <laughs> ending. <laughs> the ending is a. Uh, some some fun stock footage of little animal mamas and their babies, and it's really cute. A little odd to have there, but I mean, hey, I, it's cute animal babies. I mean, that's still popular today, so you can't you can't really lose with that. Uh, the the song that's playing in the background is called "Him to Her" by the Pretenders. Yeah, what do you think about this ending, Charles?
3: Wait, hang on. Uh, we, oh, we skipped. something I'll, I'll say something else and then we'll get to the ending. We, we did skip, like, Chris's final K-Bear address.
2: Oh, okay. He yeah, talks yeah.
3: about, like, you know, realizing the error of his ways and being oh, like, I, I shouldn't see. have, like, yeah, playing yeah. And, like, child you know childbirth isn't, like, a great miracle. It's not something we should hold up on a pedestal, nor should we, you know, tarnish it and bring it down. It's just what it is. It's just to bring new life into the planet, period. But, yeah, that ending scene is uh like i was there like like why like why was that chosen
2: (laughs) i don't know i think i honestly yeah like what um did they need to like fill more time or did they just want to uh did they want to just have some, I don't know, this seems like a very distinct choice by like one person, right? I don't think this was just like a room of people who were like, this would be great. We got it. Like, right? It's just like a a singular choice where they're like, that 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 would be cool to connect it.
3: Yeah. It's just like, I don't know. I don't think this has ever been done, right? Like in Northern Exposure.
2: <laughs> no, there's been some weird endings, right? Like th- the one that I'm thinking of most recently is the ending of... Um, I wanna say it's called Birds of a Feather because the ending is like we zoom in on Marilyn's face and there's oh, like an eagle yeah. flying and it's like yeah. voiceover it's strange. Um, there've been some some like slow uh, I'm trying man, I'm blanking here. But um, yeah, there's been some distinctive endings. This, yeah, it's it's an odd ending. I'll say that. I don't know if it's like necessarily terrible um, or like it's not like as offensive as the um, Birds of a Feather. Not offensive, but, you know, like just like strange, bizarre. I didn't like the Birds of a Feather ending, but um, yeah, I don't know. It still is a bit strange, but I think it's, I don't know, it's, it's Cute animal baby, so I can't complain.
3: Yeah, it's just like I want to yell at it for being heavy handed, but it's <laughs> oh, like, yeah,
2: exactly that. I too. don't know.
3: This is such a weird decision right there to end it right there. It's like they want it to be like, did they feel that the rest of this episode was like super sentimental where they could end it with something like this?
2: I don't know. Yeah, the only connection I'm making, I guess, is. Um, just like human nature is biological and it's a, it's a natural, like as Chris says, childbirth is the most natural thing. So like we are sort of, uh, they talk about this throughout the episode, how, well, at least Joel is saying like how a woman is like primarily trained or something to, to be a mother or something, but mm, yeah. Okay, uh, I got,
3: yeah, I get what you're saying. Eh,
2: yeah. <laughs> well, Charles, uh, I think now is the time in the podcast where we can toss it to our guest so as we mentioned up top on this podcast, we like to invite on a guest at the end of each episode, someone who has never seen Northern Exposure and get an outsider opinion on the episode. So our guest for this episode is Sean. He's uh, an old friend from college, but today he's a writer, comedian, he's a, a TV and film contributor for The Spool. So, you know, a bit of a film critic perhaps, maybe he'll have some good <laughs> insights on this, uh, on this TV series. But yeah, I guess without further ado, let's hear what Sean has to say.
0: Hello, Northern Overexposure podcast. Thanks so much for having me watch this great episode of television. My name is Sean Price, and I am very new, completely blind to Northern Exposure. I have very vague memories of it from my childhood, of seeing um, commercials for reruns of Northern Exposure. And all I remember is that theme song, that very weird Quirky theme song with that image of that moose walking around the town that is in the center of the show. Beyond that, I had no knowledge of what the tone of the show was, who was in it, what it was about. That's all I know about it. Um, and now, after watching this episode, I'm. It surprised me on a lot of levels. One, it's not the show is not streaming anywhere. This show was on for six seasons. I know it wasn't the biggest show on television, but it was on CBS, a major network, for a lot of episodes. So if anything comes from this podcast, I hope you get Paramount Plus to start streaming this show, just to make it easier for me to, to watch more episodes of it. Uh, and the other thing that shocked me was how ahead of its time it seemed to be for 1993, which is when this episode aired. So I watched episode 11 of season five, Baby Blues, which is, um, I don't have the character names in front of me right now, so I'm going to uh, try to do it by memory from when I watched this two minutes ago. But the the well, one of the things that I think makes made it seem so progressive was, so this episode specifically is about uh, motherhood. It's about... Um, womanhood, really, and about how men try to be allies and um, fail miserably because they don't actually take the time to sit back and listen, which is not something that shows really, I, I don't think, dived into in, especially in the 90s. Um, so I, I have to give this show props for, for diving into that because in in this episode, the there's two main storylines in this episode. I love both of them. Uh, the first one, is um about i think her name was shelly she is having a baby shower and that brings a lot of the townspeople together uh the 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 town dj played by um what's his name corbett let me uh look it up i it doesn't matter does it um but i want to be accurate john corbett from my big fat greek wedding of course he is the town DJ apparently, which by the way, I really miss that as a storytelling device. I don't think that's something you can really do now is having a radio DJ be like the Greek chorus of, of a movie or a show and talk about what's happening and, and how are people feeling about things. But anyway, he, uh, his character tries really hard to find, as he says, his womanness in it. Uh, by by going to this baby shower and listening to women's uh, pregnancy stories. Meanwhile, the Shelly is being terrified of hearing all these, these women's terrible labor stories. Uh, by the way, I, I also I was watching this with my wife, who turned to me at this scene, the baby shower scene, and thought and said, I've never seen a show from the 90s that talked about in this great detail about childbirth. So also kudos to the show for that. So the, the baby shower continues, and this has my favorite line in this episode, one, a very clever, well-written joke uh, where uh, Corbett is um, wants to try very hard to uh, initiate himself with these women. And he says, I want to try to find my womaness. And the woman sitting next to him, I forgot her character name, uh, very funny uh, character that was, said to him, well, start by going out and cutting your salary in half. Which I thought was so funny and so again ahead of its time. No one was talking about the the wage gap, the gender wage gap at that time. Uh, so I thought that was very cool, and and very funny. By the way, the show is very funny. I going into it, my expectation was it was going to be um, a Twin Peaks ripoff, sort of. And I saw that it it aired, the original episode aired only like two months after the Twin Peaks pilot. Aired, So there was something going on in the water of people wanting to do quirky northern or western, northwestern towns. Anyway, the second storyline, which I also love because it struck very close to my heart as an aspiring screenwriter, there is um, one of the guys in the town, he sent a screenplay to a Hollywood agent, and one of them responds in the guise of, um, oh God, Donald Logue, the great Donald Logue who shows up in this show as a Hollywood agent and he this also seemed ahead of its time because he immediately tells him to cut out all the women characters uh, because no one wants to watch women I love the line Donald says where he says only Julia and Michelle can open a movie which I think he means Julia Roberts and Michelle Pfeiffer because it was 1993 I think Michelle Pfeiffer was a big deal then she was hot off a Catwoman so she was very hot uh, at the time anyway he tells her he tells him to cut out all the 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 women um and to change it from a more oh to change the shaman character because the movie 's about a shaman. He wants him to appeal more to American audiences by cutting out the shaman stuff, which I thought was really hilarious and then Donald Logue winds up being eaten this is off camera he winds up eat, being eaten by dogs. And at the end of the show, because he's going, he's in Alaska to go on a survival wilderness trip or something. And I love how the show handled that too, because the screenwriter was just like, oh no, my agent, uh, how am I going to get the screenplay sold? And then the other people around him had to be like, hey man, this guy died. Which is a great insight into how people who are trying to make it in the show business uh, don't see people as people and how easy it is to get stuck in that mindset. Anyway, I, I, I know your episode, you get into all the plot points, so I don't know why I had to dive into that. Uh, I just wanted to sit, go into detail about how why I enjoyed the show. Uh, also, my other thing I was shocked by was uh, David Chase from The Sopranos was a showrunner for this show. That that blew my mind. Um, and before I let you go, hold on, I'm going to do... What other notes did I have here? Um, oh, got to give a shout-out to another great guest star on the show, Regina King, who has been, I forgot how long she's been dominating, but she shows up as, um, at one point, uh, uh, Shelley is her name, the pregnant woman, ventures out into the the wilderness and has a weird hallucination where she comes into contact with uh, historical mothers like Alexander the Great's mom, uh, Medea, and Mother Nature, played by the great Regina King, who gives a fantastic monologue. Uh, about the nature of, of motherhood and how difficult it can be. So, anyway, I want to give a shout out to Regina King as because she always deserves a shout out. Again, thank you again for letting me come on the show and talk about Northern exposure. And uh, it's really good. And I hope one day it's streaming somewhere and I'll check out more episodes. Okay, bye bye.
2: Well, thanks, Sean, for watching the episode and providing your thoughts. Uh, just go, I took some notes down. So, just going from the top he says, it's a great episode of TV. He really liked Northern Exposure. That's always good to hear. (laughs) He says, I think he had never really watched it at the time, but of course remembers this, uh, you know, chart topper theme song. We said this before, but this was like a very popular piece of music uh, for just being a TV theme. It was- you know, I think it was, like, played on the radio and stuff. Like, it's kind of crazy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Hey, he mentioned that he saw commercials for it. Mm. And mm-hmm. this is how we know, like, this is how we can date our guest <laughs> by, like, seeing if they can remember the show when it was airing on television or not. Because if they do, I'm like, all right, they're, like, past 30 plus. Like, <laughs> if they can remember this. <laughs>
2: right, exactly. Yeah, because it was, like, kind of for us, Charles, we would have been alive at the time, but we would not have had any sort of way to like form a memory of this unless it was like reruns or something, but yeah. Um, yeah, please, uh, Paramount plus listen to Sean, get this show streaming. Uh, we got at least one person, Sean, who really wants it. Um, (laughs) But yeah, most of his notes were talking about how ahead of its time that uh, this show was. And uh, we kind of touched on it a little bit in our discussion, Charles, but I think he kind of puts it very plainly, succinctly, how in this episode, there's a lot of focus on how men... Uh, fail to be allies to to women, you know, to, to childbirth because they don't take the time to sit back and listen. And we talked a little bit about like, sort of like mansplaining in this episode and how Chris is, uh, you know, infatuated with this idea of motherhood, but not really... Um, not really connecting
3: right and speaking of chris he talks about how he really likes him as the role of the greek chorus (laughs)
2: yeah
3: uh that is like the second time i want to say that someone has compared him to that which is uh very nice like i always like it whenever someone picks up on that says that he misses that aspect of um television how you could have this town dj fulfill the role of somebody that can provide a lot of exposition but also still provide setting it's not like an omniscient uh narrator right there
2: yeah, in a way, it's like it's a it's to pre- like represent, reaffirm the tone, and then also just like underline some of the ideas, like give you some time to think and digest. Like it's not necessarily moving the plot forward, but just sort of reiterating some ideas, throwing some perspective on it. And yeah, as I said before, Chris is probably one of my favorite parts of the show, so I'm really glad to have him as the uh, as the Greek chorus. Sean points out he was watching it with his wife and how they they comment on just how surprised they were that there's lots of detail about childbirth, like specific details, uh, not common for a show at this time to go so, so in depth about that. Also making jokes about the gender wage gap, which is not, um, I don't know if they're necessarily talking about that a lot in the 90s, but you know, it's still a thing today that is uh, very topical. Let's see what else. He, he originally going into it maybe expected something more akin to Twin Peaks but it is a very comedic show, as he said. Uh, he gives some shout-outs to Donald Logue, of course, doing some doing some great work. Uh, Regina King and David Chase, who uh, Sean David Chase just joined Northern Exposure this season as the showrunner, like the original show's creators left the show this season, and he's he's now in charge of the in charge of the ship, I guess. But um, but yeah, I think it was maybe a bit of a rocky start, Charles. I'm starting to ease into season five a little bit, but. But yeah, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I am getting like okay on it. Yeah. I just know, and I don't want you to spoil me on this, but I know that like at some point there's some sort of uh like thing with Joel leaving the show, <laughs> and I know there's supposed to be like another cast member. So like I'm just waiting, the waiting. Day, for which like I, I turn on the like the television or like the, you know the laptop, and then I see like that new cast member, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's the guy. That's the person that's supposed to replace.
2: I Joe. I, um, I keep thinking like, have we already passed the good episodes? Like, are there no more, are there, well, I mean like, are there any episodes remaining that are as good as the ones that we've seen before this? And again, like the fifth season, I've probably seen only twice. The sixth season, I only ever watched it once. But- I do remember there are some cool, there's some cool episodes coming up, so I'm excited. But yeah, I wonder, it's like, are we already past the peak? I I don't know. But to get back to Sean's commentary, I wanted to talk a little bit about Donald Logue's bit. Um, We didn't talk about this in our episode, but Donald Logue says something like, only Julia and Michelle can open a movie. And Sean says, he's probably talking about Julia Roberts and Michelle Pfeiffer, which I think would make sense for that time period. But Sean mentions how Donald Logue's character is eaten by dogs and he clarifies it. It happens off camera. But I was just thinking when Sean said that, like, what if we went and we found like there are deleted scenes? Because we'll often go back to the DVDs and look to see (laughs) if this has a deleted scene. And there's like a deleted scene of him dying on screen. Like, why why would you shoot that? (laughs) You don't need that. Well, they shot that
3: scene of like um, Joel's mother just like jumping off that cliff. Like, they actually <laughs> showed that. <laughs> that reminds me. I don't know why. It, anytime you say, like, pack of dogs, I always laugh. Because it reminds me of this uh, joke in 30 Rock where Tracy Morgan has, like, a breakdown. And he starts talking about how traumatic his childhood is. And he, uh, one of his lines is that he said that he saw a pack of wild dogs... Successfully take over a Wendy's and run it. <laughs> oh
2: <my God. laughs> like, that always gets me. I was not even. I was not expecting that. That actually got me really good. I know it's such a good line <laughs> out
3: there. So whenever I hear like pack of wild dogs, it's like it's it's that punchline. <laughs>
2: Wow, that's good. I, I should watch Thirty Rock. I mean, I've seen Thirty Rock, but I haven't seen all of it. Like I've only seen I mean, it's
3: got like a. I mean, it's got a joke a second. So I know, like, yeah. There's like a million of them packed in there, but yeah, Sean ultimately gave a shout out to Regina King, mm-hmm. saying that he's always going to praise her performance right there. Like we acknowledged, she uh, knocked it out of the park this episode, and ultimately he enjoyed it. He wants yeah. to look at more episodes of this. So, like we said, Paramount Plus, if you're listening let's uh, put this on in the streaming service
2: yes please hi marks from Sean there um, well yeah once again Sean thank you so much for taking the time to watch it giving us your commentary and I'm glad you enjoyed it you know sometimes we get some dud episodes but yeah I think I think it's a pretty decent one and and it seems you really liked it so thanks again for doing that on so, on such short notice but um yeah Charles we're done with this episode today next week we're going to be talking about season 5 episode 12. Ooh, this one's interesting. It's called Mr. Sandman. Do you have any guesses about that?
3: (laughs) What do you think about? Go ahead. For context, for context, (laughs) we... By the time this show is airing, it's probably going to coincide with uh, their podcast. We were just on... um, What is their podcast name? It's called Little Marty
2: now. Little Marty. Little
3: Marty. They were guests uh, previously, Eric and Jeremy, respectively, uh, where they had a podcast where they were discussing movies that were having like Wes Anderson. They were talking about Paul Thomas Anderson. And now they're on a, a filmography role where they're talking about Martin Scorsese and Adam Sandler and we were invited on their pod just yesterday to talk about the film Spanglish. <laughs> and I constantly referred to Adam Sandler as the, the Sandman. Sandman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he's going to make
2: an appearance in next week's episode. That's yes. the prediction. The Sandman yes, Adam himself. Adam Sandler.
3: <laughs> he's come hot off the heels of SNL. I think he just got fired. Maybe okay. around that time, 94? 1994. yeah, January. I want to say, he's, okay. like, he's, he's around that era. <laughs> and he's going to guest star, just like Jack Black. Uh, he's going to make his... Post SNL appearance, Northern Exposure.
2: The famous, the famed post SNL Adam Sandler appearance on Northern Exposure that everyone talks about. Uh, Next week, tune in. All right, Charles, I'll see you then.
3: All right, I'll see you then. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Sean for being our guest analyst. If you like the write-in, you can reach us at Podcast at gmail.com at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.